Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our second season has explored the history, mystery, and hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri, the most haunted city along the Mississippi River. It's a season that's now coming to an end with this episode, which is coincidentally the final episode of our series within a series about the St. Louis exorcism of 1949, perhaps the greatest supernatural event to occur in St. Louis history. Or is it? That's what we'll be exploring in this final episode. It would seem that after five previous episodes about this story, we have nothing left to talk about, but that's not the case. The legend of the St. Louis exorcism is alive and well in the city today, and we're going to try and get to the bottom of the mystery, if that's possible. As you're well aware of by now, the story of the devil coming to St. Louis has appeared in books, magazines, TV shows, and more, but in St. Louis, it has remained a bizarre mixture of urban legends, half-truths, and outright lies dating back seven decades. I constantly hear from people who assure me that the exorcism was carried out in this building or that one, not realizing that actual records exist to dispute those facts, or that I was able to interview the last living witness to the exorcism and have heard their stories. The story of the St. Louis exorcism has been a labor of love for me since the 1990s. I've been fascinated with it since before Robbie Doe's real name was available on the internet, or honestly, even before there was much of an internet. My ideas about what happened in 1949 have changed many times over the years, as I've spoke to one person or another, or even became a part of my own story in a search for witnesses. Do I have all the answers? No. I'm afraid that I don't. When Cody and I started this portion of the podcast, I promised we would do our best to clear up the myths, fallacies, and lies, but I would be unable to decide for you whether you want to believe in the reality of the story or not. I'm not sure that this last episode will convince you one way or another, but, well, who knows. Keep an open mind for this one last episode, and let's see where the story takes us. Robbie left St. Louis with his parents 12 days after the exorcism ended at the Alexian Brothers Hospital. They returned to Maryland, and in May 1949, Robbie wrote a letter to Father Bowdern and told him he was happy and had a new dog. He had become a normal, typical American boy of the late 1940s. No matter whether you believe in demons or possession or not, most can agree that something very strange happened to this kid in 1949. If you believe that he faked the whole thing, then consider the trauma he must have experienced when the joke went too far and found himself subjected to an exorcism, which certainly wasn't a pleasant experience. If you believe that he was truly possessed or even mentally ill, 
then we have to consider him a victim of an unexplainable horror. The only person who knew what really happened during that terrible winter and spring was Robbie himself, and he never spoke about it again. Those who gently tried to prod his memory soon learned he had an only dim recollection of what had occurred anyway. Robbie went on to attend a Catholic high school and remains a devout Catholic today. His family left the Lutheran church and converted to Catholicism. Robbie later married and had children, then grandchildren. There have been many rumors spread about him over the years, like that he committed suicide or that he was a pilot for American Airlines, but, well, they aren't true. What is true is that he became a literal rocket scientist and nothing supernatural ever occurred in his life again. He lived an ordinary existence in the Washington, D.C. area with his family and managed to stay out of the spotlight for the last 70 years. Like Robbie, the Jesuits involved in the case went on to lead productive and mostly happy lives. None of the terrible death threats or predictions made by Robbie during the exorcism ever came to pass, and none of them were burning in hell in 1957 either. Those dire warnings turned out to be among many deceptions carried out by either the boy or the demon, depending on what you believe. Father Bowdern was convinced until the end of his life that he and his fellow priests had been battling a demonic entity. His supporters maintained that there were many witnesses to the events that took place and that no other explanation existed for what occurred other than a supernatural one. A full report that was filed by the Archdiocese stated that the case of Robbie Doe was a, quote, genuine demonic possession. According to Father John Nicola, who had the opportunity to review the report, he noted that 48 persons had signed a document attesting to the fact that they'd witnessed paranormal phenomena in the case. The only church mention that was ever made of the exorcism was an August 19, 1949 issue of the Catholic Review, a semi-official church publication. Archbishop Joseph E. Ritter of St. Louis appointed a Jesuit professor to conduct an investigation, but the results were never made public. Ritter asked his subordinates to stop talking about the incident after receiving the report because, according to a source, quote, it's not that they were hiding anything, it's just that they felt the overall effect of the thing was counterproductive. As we've mentioned before, Father Bowder never publicly spoke of the exorcism. He wanted to protect Robbie's privacy, and while he felt it would be beneficial for people to know that evil existed in the world, he was also worried about the result of revealing the truth of it. As he told Walter Halloran, quote, make a statement about it, you'd have a whole group of people who'd want to destroy it, and you'd have another group of people who'd want to make it a true exorcism. I don't think the church is ever going to say a word about it. I think they'll never say whether it was or it wasn't, but you and I know it. We were there. Father Bowdern took his knowledge of the exorcism with him to the grave. He remained the pastor of St. Francis Xavier Church until 1956, went on to other assignments, ending his career back at the same church as confessor. And while he never spoke about what happened in 1949, there are rumors that he may have performed another exorcism before he retired. In June 1950, the Bishop of Steubenville, Ohio, aware of the 1949 St. Louis exorcism, wrote to Archbishop Ritter and asked for help. The Ohio Bishop said that a young man in Steubenville was attacking priests and nuns and that it was believed he might be possessed. Ritter, through his chancellor, asked Bowdern to look into the matter, but there's no further information as to what might have occurred after that. Father Bowdern passed away in 1983 at the age of 86. Father Raymond Bishop, after 22 years at St. Louis University, was sent to Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. He taught there for more than 20 years and died in 1978 at the age of 72. 
Father O'Flattery served as the pastor and the assistant pastor of St. Francis Xavier and other churches until 1976, when he went into retirement at Regis College in Denver, Colorado. He died in pneumonia at St. Louis University Hospital in 1987 at the age of 80. Walter Halloran was a seminary student at the time of the exorcism, and while he participated in most of it, was not present at the Alexian Brothers Hospital when it came to the end. Regardless, he had seen and witnessed enough to make him an excellent witness to what occurred. Because of this, he'd appeared in a number of articles that had been written about the case by the time that I began doing my own research into the story. Walter Halloran was ordained as a priest in 1954. Two years later, he began teaching history and theology and surprise, coaching football at the Campion Jesuit High Boarding School in Wisconsin. Between 1963 and 1966, he taught history at Marquette University, and then in 1966, he volunteered for the U.S. Army and began serving as a chaplain. He initially served in Germany, but at the age of 48, volunteered for paratrooper duty, and then went on to Vietnam in 1969. He earned two bronze stars for his heroic efforts during the war. In 1971, Father Halloran left the service and returned to St. Louis University as assistant director of campus ministry and then as alumni director. He went on to a variety of assignments in Minnesota and California and during this time became a reluctant celebrity when word leaked out that the movie, The Exorcist, was based on a true story. Father Halloran never sought fame and frankly didn't want it, but he did speak out many times about what happened in St. Louis in 1949. I found that Father Halloran had made some conflicting, at best, statements about the exorcism over the years. On one hand, he'd stated he was not convinced that Robbie exhibited any sort of unnatural strength when he was allegedly possessed. He said that he had been punched by the boy several times and believed it to be nothing more than the strength that an agitated adolescent could summon. But then, perhaps in contemplation, Father Halloran later reversed some of his comments and told an interviewer that while he was not an expert in the field to make a determination as to whether the possession was officially genuine or not, he did believe that it was real. I have always thought in my mind it was, he said. In one interview, he dismissed the idea that, as in the movie, Robbie ever levitated off the bed. However, he did add that on several occasions, the iron bed that the boy was on did actually levitate off the floor. He also described the skin writings that had appeared on Robbie's legs and chest and expressed he had no natural explanation for them. I spoke with Father Halloran in late 2004 and early 2005, not long before his death. Although I expected him to be very tired of talking about the story of Robbie Doe, he gladly provided me with four interviews that made up much of my book about the case. Of course, I asked them the inevitable question as to whether he believed the possession was authentic, and he paused for a moment before he answered. I can't say whether it or not it was valid. At one time, I felt more strongly in one way than another, but I simply don't know. I've never been convinced that it fit all the criteria of a true possession, but there was something going on there that I could not explain. For this reason and others, I have withheld judgment on the matter. Father Bowdern always believed in the case, but I've never been comfortable with any decision. Well, I asked Father Halloran whether he believed Robbie could have faked his symptoms. His answer to this was without doubt. No, I've never felt that he faked any of it. He was a nice kid. What happened, I can't say, but it was not a hoax. I also asked if he believed it could have been caused by mental illness, and he replied, perhaps. 
I've always thought that, taken one at a time, many of the incidents could be explained as being psychosomatic, but the dilemma comes when you put them all together. I don't know if a mental illness can explain all of that. My last interview with Father Halloran took place in January 2005, and I learned a short time later, on March 1st, that he passed away from cancer at the age of 83. He had been living at the St. Camillus Jesuit community in Wisconsin at the time of his death. I found another very unexpected witness in 2014 when I learned of Brother Greg Holowinski, the Alexian monk that we mentioned in the last episode. Near death, Brother Greg wanted to tell his story, and I met with him at a retirement home for Alexians in Milwaukee. Prior to my visit with him, I had never been able to decide if I believed in the idea of possession. It was very clear to me that something extraordinary had happened to Robbie and his family in 1949, but I was unsure what it might have been. My thoughts on the case became a little clearer after meeting with Brother Greg. He had been directly involved in the exorcism and saw the events at the Alexian Brothers Hospital for himself. As he explained to me, it was a terrifying experience. He told me, The first night that I went up, the boy was lying in bed. His eyes were closed tight. He reacted differently when the possession took place. Every now and then, the devil, using the boy's voice, would curse and swear. Brother Greg helped keep Robbie on the bed as the exorcism took place. Robbie thrashed about, flipping his arms and legs from side to side. One night, Brother Greg explained, I was at the foot of the bed and had my arms crossed over and anchored to his knee. I was frightened, and I just saw something unbelievable. You could feel the powers of the devil. I saw the boy's body levitate. Just as I had asked Father Halloran more than a decade before, I asked Brother Greg if he believed that it was possible that the whole thing had been a hoax. His answer was firm. No way. Anybody with common sense walking in and seeing that knows that it couldn't be faked. There was no question to Brother Greg that what he saw in the hospital room was absolutely genuine and the work of evil forces. As he told me, what I saw was real. What I touched was real. It was an experience that I would never forget. This was a man who spent his entire life in service to others as an Alexian monk. This was a man who had no reason to make up a story. He had kept this secret his entire life and only told the story at the end because he believed that people needed to know the truth, that there is evil in the world. Just a few weeks after my interview, Brother Greg passed away. The last living witness to the 1949 St. Louis exorcism was gone. Robbie moved on with his life, but the story of the exorcism began taking on a life of its own. While the Jesuit community, out of respect for Father Bowdoin and Archbishop Ritter, kept the secret of the exorcism, Reverend Luther Schultz in Maryland had no responsibility to do so. You might remember Reverend Schultz from our earlier episodes. He was the Lutheran minister who invited Robbie into his home and witnessed some of the strange activities surrounding the boy for himself. He was the one who suggested that the family contact the Catholic Church because, well, you know, Catholics know about these kinds of things. Reverend Schultz became the first person to break the secrecy of the story. 
Soon after the family returned home in late April, Schultz noticed they were not coming to his church on Sundays. He stopped by to see them and learned that Robbie had become a Catholic and his parents were in the process of doing the same. Schultz apparently felt that the conversion released him from any confidential relationship he had with them. So on August 9th, he told a meeting of the Washington DC branch of the Society for Parapsychology that he had witnessed a poltergeist in the home of a Mr. and Mrs. John Doe, who lived in a Washington suburb. He used Robbie's actual first name and told them of the strange manifestations that he'd seen in his own home. He added that the boy was later taken to a city in the Midwest, but did not speak of the exorcism, which he had no real information about. But somehow, that part of the story also leaked out. News of a poltergeist outbreak reached the newspapers and Schultz made himself available for interviews. No exorcism was ever mentioned in the article, which kept the identity secret, but somehow one of the accounts garbled the remarks from the meeting that Schultz attended and reported that three exorcisms had taken place in the Midwestern city. The idea of an exorcism was so much more interesting to the newspapers that the poltergeist story was abandoned in favor of the alleged exorcisms. Reporters began calling contacts at the Archdiocese in Washington and the query started a chain of events. A spokesman for Archbishop O'Boyle in Washington refused to provide any information to the press, but as mentioned, details ended up being leaked to the Catholic Review, the nationally syndicated paper. In the edition that was dated on August 19th, a three-paragraph story appeared under the Washington Dateline, and it read, A 14-year-old Washington boy whose history of diabolical possession was widely reported in the press last week was successfully exercised by a priest after being received into the Catholic Church it was learned here. The priest refused to discuss the case in any way. However, it is known that several attempts had been made to free the boy of the manifestations. A Catholic priest was called upon for help. When the boy expressed the desire to enter the church with the consent of his parents, he received religious instruction. Later, the priest baptized him and then successfully performed the ritual of exorcism. The parents of the afflicted boy are non-Catholics. So pretty much it was a very short story that was largely Catholic propaganda. But strangely, at this point, the possession had not been widely reported, as the story said. And the brief article seemed to be little more than an attempt by the church to control the story. As it turned out, though, it only whetted the appetites of the Washington press. Jeremiah O'Leary, an assistant city editor for the Washington Star News, spotted the story and began trying to track down information. He later admitted that he called every priest that he knew before finally publishing a short story that was printed on the afternoon of August 19th on an inside page of the paper. The following day, the Washington Post printed a long and detailed story about the exorcism on their front page. They reported that the exorcism occurred in both Washington and St. Louis and had been carried out by a, quote, Jesuit in his 50s. The secret of the exorcism was finally out. One of the readers of the newspaper stories was William Peter Blatty, an undergraduate at Georgetown University. Blatty, who was then in his junior year, was considering becoming a Jesuit. He became a writer instead, and in 1970, began work on a book that would be based on the stories he'd heard about an exorcist diary and the articles that he read in college. Blatty was never able to get a look at the diary that Father Bishop had kept about the case, but he did manage to track down Father Bowdern's name. He contacted the Jesuit, but Father Bowdern declined to comment about the story. However, he did tell Blatty that, quote, 
My own thoughts were that much good might have come if the case had been reported and people had come to realize that the presence and the activity of the devil is something very real and possibly never more real than at the present time. I can assure you of one thing. The case in which I was involved was the real thing. I had no doubt about it then and I have no doubt about it now. At Father Bowden's request, Blatty changed the identity of the possession victim in his book to a young girl. He also fictionalized the events of the exorcism and moved the setting from St. Louis to Washington, D.C. One thing remained, though. The exorcist in the book may have been called Father Marin, but he was a thinly disguised version of Father Bowden. In 1971, Blatty's book, The Exorcist, appeared in print and became an instant bestseller. There was immediate talk of a film version and Blatty was hired to do the script. The resulting film was a solid financial success and is remembered today as one of the most terrifying films ever made. The film opened on December 26, 1973 to massive crowds. Within weeks of the first public screenings of the film, stories started to make the rounds that audience members were fainting and vomiting in the theaters. There were also reports of disturbing nightmares and reportedly a number of theater ushers had to be placed under a doctor's care or quit their jobs after experiencing successive showings of the movie. In numerous cities that were checked after the exorcist had run for several weeks, reporters found that every major hospital had been forced to deal with patients who reported, after seeing the film, severe cases of vomiting and hallucinations. There were also reports of people being carried out of the theater in stretchers. Were these just publicity stunts or the real thing? Eh, who knows? The film created a widespread interest in exorcism, but the result of this was often questionable. Scores of already disturbed people began showing up at churches with claims of being possessed, while their problems should have been attributed to mental illness instead. In addition, renegade priests and self-proclaimed holy men started billing themselves as exorcists and demonologists, hoping to cash in on the popularity of the film and the widespread interest in the occult that followed its release. As anyone who watches television today knows, outlandish claims about demons and those who wish they were demonologists can be found on some of the worst paranormal shows on cable networks. And we can thank The Exorcist for all of that. Fantastic. But our story still doesn't end there. For all of those who believe that the devil really did come to St. Louis in 1949, there are just as many people who believe he's never left. When Robbie left the Alexian Brothers Hospital that spring, Brother Cornelius went to the fifth floor corridor of the old wing, turned a key in the door, and stated that the room was to be kept permanently locked. From that day on, the Alexian Brothers in St. Louis maintained the secrets of the exorcism. The existence of Father Bishop's diary was also a secret in those days. When completed, a copy of it had been sent to Brother Cornelius on April 29th, and he had placed that copy inside of the room when it was sealed. For years after the exorcism, people who were involved in the case or who had worked in the hospital shared stories of things they heard and saw during the several week ordeal that occurred in the psychiatric wing. Orderlies spoke of cleaning up pools of vomit and urine in the boys' room. Staff members and nurses claimed to hear the sounds of someone screaming and the echoes of demonic laughter coming from Robbie's room. Most especially though, they spoke of the cold waves of air that seemed to emanate from the room. No matter how warm the rest of the hospital was, the area around the door to the boys' room was always ice cold. Even after the exorcism ended, 
Something apparently remained behind. Was it some remnant of the entity that possessed Robbie or perhaps the impression of the horrific events that occurred in the room? Whatever it was, the room was never reopened. Electrical problems plagued the surrounding rooms and it was always cold in the hallway outside of it. As the years passed, tales about the locked room were passed on to new monks, nurses, and orderlies who came to serve at the hospital. They did not understand why one room in a wing for seriously mentally ill patients was kept sealed until they heard about what had happened there. The Alexians who had been on staff in 1949 would not soon forget what they'd seen and heard. In the early 1950s, one of the monks was working at a boys' summer camp that was operated by the St. Louis Archdiocese near Hillsboro, Missouri. He was a gentle, friendly man and was well-liked by the boys. One afternoon, the monk was sitting at a table in the mess hall with several of the young men and they were talking and laughing and paying little attention to a radio that was playing in the background. Then a song came on that used the theme of the Woody Woodpecker cartoons, a song that had Woody's jangling and rather maniacal laugh. Here's a snippet of that song. The large Alexian lunged across the table and roughly yanked the radio's electrical cord out of the socket. Trembling and breaking out in a cold sweat, he simply told his companions he couldn't stand that song. Later on, though, he told them about night after night in the spring of 1949 when he and other monks were kept awake by wild, chilling laughter that sounded a lot like Woody Woodpecker, coming from one of the rooms in the old wing of the Alexian Brothers Hospital. Other Alexians had their own stories to tell. They spoke of banging sounds on their doors at night, voices calling in the darkened corridors, and more. Over the years, I've been contacted by dozens of people with stories to tell about the old wing of the Alexian Brothers Hospital. Nurses, maintenance people, orderlies, even doctors. They all have distinct and disturbing memories about the old wing in the locked room on the security floor. One of them even told me that sometimes, even after all these years, he still dreams about the corridors of the old wing and that one locked door. And there are more stories, seemingly endless stories, which have turned the St. Louis exorcism into the stuff of legend. Are they true, wishful thinking, tall tales, mere urban legends? It seems that everyone has to be taken with a grain of salt. However, as we know, there is a kernel of truth at the heart of every story. Many of the stories involved the physical locations connected to the case. As we documented, there were only three in St. Louis, the house on Roanoke Drive in Belnor, the Alexian Brothers Hospital, and the rectory at the St. Francis Xavier Church. The rectory was torn down and replaced many years ago, but even afterwards, stories were still told. Legend on campus has it that in the spring of 1949, students often told stories of hearing screams, cries, and strange noises coming from the open windows of the rectory. Occasionally, those who passed by would get a hint of a terrible odor that wafted from the windows. Of course, such stories were only documented long after the events of 1949 and long after the exorcism on the St. Louis University campus had become public knowledge. 
1978, the old section of the Alexi Brothers Hospital also became a memory. Two years earlier, work began on the new hospital, and in the first phase of the construction, some of the buildings were torn down to make way for a new modern tower and two new wings. In October 1978, the patients were moved out of the original hospital building, and the contractor ordered the structure to be raised. It was done, but it's been said that it was not done without difficulty. Workers on the demolition crew claimed to be unable to control the wrecking ball when they tried to remove the former security floor. The ball swung around and hit a portion of the new building, but luckily did no damage. This incident seemed to further enhance the legend of the room, a legend that continued to grow. Before the demolition was started, workers first combed through the building for old furniture that was to be taken out and sold. One of them found a locked room in the psychiatric wing and broke in. The room was fully furnished with a dust-covered bed, nightstand, chairs, and a desk table with a single drawer. Before removing the table, the worker curiously opened the drawer to see what was inside. He found a small stack of papers. The furniture, along with the rest of the items in the locked room, was sold to a company that owned a nursing home a short distance away from the hospital. All of that which was salvaged from the hospital was locked in a room on the fourth floor of the nursing home and was never used. The nursing home itself was later torn down and many of these demolition workers, like the staff people and the city inspectors who had come through the building over the years, refused to go on the fourth floor. They were never able to understand or explain why. What became of the furniture from the locked room is unknown. Or at least that's one version of the story. In recent years, another, stranger version about the fate of the items within the room has come to light. According to sources, the furniture was removed from the locked room at the time of the demolition, but was never sold to the nursing home with the rest of it. The bed, nightstand, chairs, and desk table were instead moved and locked away in the basement of an unnamed St. Louis rectory. Years later, the rectory was scheduled to be torn down and movers were brought in to haul away the items that were left in the basement. According to one of them, he arrived at the rectory with some of the other workers and they were taken down to the basement by a priest. He unlocked a door to one of the rooms in the back and let the men inside. However, the worker distinctly remembered that the priest himself refused to set foot inside the room. Within the room, they found several pieces of furniture that they were directed to remove and then seal up into a wooden crate. After that, the crate was to be placed in a storage facility and locked away. The movers completed the task and then moved the crate to a storage warehouse that is located almost directly across from the gates to Scott Air Force Base in Illinois. According to his story, the furniture from the exorcism room, as it became known, is still there at that storage facility sealed in a crate, and largely forgotten. Perhaps right next to the Ark of the Covenant. Who knows? But back to the room. The papers that the workmen found in the desk drawer were, of course, Brother Cornelius's copy of the priest's diary. The workman took the papers to his boss, the contractor for the demolition, who then passed them on to the administrator of the hospital, who was a layman. The administrator read the cover letter from Father Bishop to Father Cornelius in bewilderment, but then started to turn the pages of the diary. As he began to scan through it, he began to see references to exorcism and realized that the diary spelled out all the secrets of the locked room. His daughter, who was attending secretarial school and helping out in her father's office, managed to get a look at the paper before the administrator locked them away. She recognized the name Walter Halloran in the text because he was the uncle of one of her classmates. The rest 
as they say, is history. But St. Louis legend has it that this was not the strangest thing to happen when the locked room was opened. According to crew members who worked for the Department of Transportation, something was seen emerging from the room just moments before the wrecking ball claimed it. Whatever it was, the men said it looked like a cat or a big rat or something. I wouldn't begin to suggest what this creature might have been, natural or supernatural, but I will say that it has continued to add to the legend of the St. Louis exorcism case over the years. The old hospital and the rectory have both vanished into history, but the house on the 8400 block of Roanoke Drive in Belnor remains intact. For years, this house, located on a quiet, tree-lined street, was largely ignored by those interested in the story of the exorcism. It was through the property records of the house that I first learned the names of the so-called Doe family and traced them all the way back to Maryland. But little was publicized about the house until 2005 when it went up for sale and was purchased by a man who bought it and then abandoned it, never to be heard from again. That story made the papers, as did the house's connection to the exorcism. A poorly researched and inaccurate article appeared that fall in a local paper, which they continued to reprint without updating it every Halloween. That story became most people's introduction to the notoriety of the house in Belnor, but it would not be the end of it. Since that time, it's appeared in a number of documentaries and books and was the location for an infamous radio broadcast in 2008 with the Dave Glover Show from St. Louis. I was there that night at the house and can vouch for the strange occurrences that took place on the air. Several contestants were supposed to spend an hour alone late at night in the room where Robbie's exorcism took place. None of them made it. One of them fled the house before the contest even began. Another one stayed only a few minutes, sitting alone in the dark in the completely empty house and hearing footsteps in the room and the hallway outside the door. When the door handle began rattling up and down, he ran to the door and opened it to find that the hallway outside was empty. That was enough for him. The last contestant did not even last as long as he had. Just minutes after sitting down in the room, a shadow appeared under the doorway, although once again, the house was empty. Knocking sounds were heard in the hallway and inside the walls, and then when a thumping and dragging sound, all of which could be heard on the air, loudly crashed outside of the door, she began to scream for help, begging for someone to come to the house and get her. The crew had to rush inside and found her trembling, shaking, and crying. Even after she'd recovered, she refused to go back into the house. She'd only been in the bedroom for eight minutes. That night at the house in Belnor ended in chaos, but it left an impression on me. I've been back to the house since that time, but I've never forgotten that night. Even before my chilling interview with Brother Greg, that night altered my opinion about what really happened in St. Louis in 1949. I still didn't have a definitive opinion to offer on the validity of the possession, but I couldn't help but think there was real evil in the world and that sometimes it left a physical presence behind. After listening to six episodes of the podcast, you may still not believe that some people can become diabolically possessed, but there's no way to adequately dismiss every unusual thing that happened in this case. As I've said many times, something happened to Robbie Doe, his family, scores of witnesses, and a group of priests in 1949. What that something was remains, as always, up to each one of us to decide for ourselves. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? 
And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words, how, how? Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things now, is paranormal. Is this where I start interrupting you, or is that the end? It's in it. I'll, I'll cue you. Oh, okay. You are listening right. to episode 35, which is the 21st episode of season two, which delves into the hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. This is your cue. Oh, now I'm supposed to talk. I know. I'm sorry. You'll get the hang of it eventually. So, hey, Merry Christmas. Yes, even though Merry it's, Christmas. we're not recording this on Christmas, don't you know? Here's your here's your peek behind the scenes. We don't actually record. See this how stuff the when sausage is made. But, uh, but Merry Christmas when you're listening to this, because uh, that's going to be the first chance you'll have is December 25th. So for all of you who are people of my own heart, avoiding your family and so-called friends, and you know, doing nothing on Christmas but listening to this podcast. Merry Christmas. This is our gift to you. <laughs> yeah. And also on the flip side, if you want your family to leave you alone, you could say, hey, yeah. we should just all listen to this yeah. podcast together. And then they'll never speak to you again. And they'll so, clear the room. That's right. Or just put in some earbuds and tune them out. Yeah. So that's what I recommend. So we have a couple of housekeeping things to get started with. Do you want to yeah, dive into Yeah, we should those? do these quickly. Um, we got a lot to talk about. So, But I do want to cover this stuff quickly because... As a lot of you probably are well aware, this is the final episode of the season, as we've already said, and um, we will not be back for regular episodes again until after all of the stuff I'm going to tell you about has already happened. 
So um, that's why we wanted to make sure we mentioned it. Uh, we will be back with a couple of special episodes in January. And of course, our Dead of Winter episode, which will be on February 12th. Dead of Winter being on the 9th, but the episode will air on the 12th. Correct. Uh, so February 9th, Dead of Winter event. Uh, Alton, Illinois, Mineral Springs Hotel, free daytime event. Uh, we've talked about it before. Uh, if you want details, go back a couple episodes. You can hear more. But put it on your calendar if you haven't already. Um, January the 7th is the next thing coming up. That is the day that Haunted America conference tickets go on sale. You will hear us talking about the conference, I'm sure, for the next six months. But that's when the tickets go on sale. So if there are after-hour events that you want to do, make sure that you get your reservation in as early as possible so that you do not get left out in the cold. Uh, and speaking of cold, our next Ghost of the River Road. Now, I, I'm just that kidding. Was, that um, was a but good little yeah, Our next segue. Ghost of the River Road tour, our, our winter season is January 26th. Uh, we're already about half full. Um, that is dinner and an evening on the River Road with uh, dinner at Bluff City Grill in Alton and it is uh, dessert at the Aries Winery in Grafton uh, with other stops in Grafton and in Alton. It's a fun night, um, and uh, we, we hope to see you there. A Dead of Winter event I already mentioned. Um, February 23rd is an evening at the Mineral Springs. That is our Sex and the Supernatural evening. Um, it's going to be fun. a presentation. It's going to be a wine and desserts and um, a presentation on Sex and the Supernatural and uh, it's it's I can't we're having a tough time with this one. Um, it's filling up, but getting the word out is not easy because Facebook keeps banning our event um, because I'm not sure what they think it is. But it's it's not what they think it is, but it will be what you think it's going to be. So there's no there's How's no that, there's but... no ghost sex at this. Oh, uh, well, there won't be any like actively going on there that I'm aware of. Right. But um, at least that, that I know of. Right. But, and that is a warning. We will be out. talking about it. So you have to you know. give out the warning too before the Mineral Springs tourists people do not do anything <laughs> yeah. inappropriate. Yeah, please. right. Exactly. So we can't have any of that. So but anyway, yeah. Um, anyway, go to the website, AmericanHauntings.net. All of that stuff is on there. It's on the Facebook page. So anyway, we hope to see some of you guys at some of our winter events. We we love keeping this dead of winter, you know, ghost stories in the wintertime tradition alive from, from olden days. And so we like to have, you know, try to have as many events as we can in the wintertime. It's not just for Halloween. So anyway, I know a lot of people are wondering uh, about our next season now that we're wrapping this one up. Um, we will have an announcement about season three at the very end of this episode. So now you have to listen all the way to the end, um, and you can hear about what season three is going to be about. So um, next episode will be the new episode will begin on February 26th. We'll have some other episodes in between, but the next new season will begin at the end of February. So we'll get to that. But for now, let's let's get going on this episode. All right. So when we last left off, Robbie was cured. Yes. Essentially. Essentially. Uh, the exorcism finally seemed to take hold. And uh, as we mentioned last time, he had some crazy dreams about an angel and some right. demons in a cave right. and Dominus and Spite and all these things. So yeah. you can check that out on part five, uh, but you should already be caught up. Right. But uh, anyway, so that's done. And then he doesn't really remember too much. And the story just it just ends, right? And nothing, nothing well, happens. Not, no, not yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. So as we're gonna dive into uh, Reverend Schultz, he uh, he snitched. Essentially. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Well, I always like to say that he was a sore loser. 
Yes. You know, because he shows up at their house. Oh, you know, how come you're not coming to church anymore? Well, we've decided to become Catholics. So, I mean, it was almost like, well, you know, hey, fuck them then. I don't have to keep their secrets. And so he decides to go to a meeting and show off. I mean, I, that's essentially what this boils down to. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, we have to kind of thank him for being a snitch because yeah. we wouldn't know anything about this story and the exorcist would have never have happened if not for his talking and it being picked up in the newspapers. Right. And that's how the story eventually would completely leak out. And it took a lot of years to do it, but eventually it all got out there, but it all boils down to being his fault. Yeah. So, well, so he can't, you can't thank him or blame him. It's whatever. basically like you hand a client off and then somebody else closes the sale and then you're like, Oh wait, can I get some commission? And can we, you yeah, know, that's, uh, kind of, that's exactly what it's like. like no yeah. man, you tossed right. the yeah. buck. You already passed it on to somebody else, you know, to the Catholics who know about those kinds of things. Exactly. You know? So exactly. Yeah. You, he was a sore loser. Yeah. That's what it boils down to. So the family returned to Maryland in May, 1949. And, uh, I just want to talk a little bit of the, the rumors that you hear about Robbie are not, true for the most part no not for the most part they're not i mean there were lots of stories that spread and i i mentioned a couple of them you know about i don't know you pick up these oddball things out here and there uh but most of them i mean most of the ones i heard is that he eventually committed suicide you know things like none of those things ever happened i mean this he went on to live a, a very normal life you know, right. Um, and he's a rocket scientist yeah, now. Yeah, know? right. I mean, he went into the you know aeronautics field, and uh, which is probably where the pilot stories got started, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But um, he was, uh, you know, really went on to a good career. Yeah, and had a family, and is is still alive. I mean, to this, I keep watching. I watch the obituaries, right? But uh, because I mean, he's. I mean, even he was a kid when all this happened, but he's getting up there now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's been a while. So I know that you're withholding his name, as you've promised to do, um, until after his death and, and things. Are there other things you're not allowed to talk about or f- don't feel comfortable talking about until he's passed? Um, yeah. yeah. But there are, some, there are some other aspects of the story that um, involve things that happened after that I'm, I don't, I'm not going to talk about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen them pop up in other places, but some of them are fairly rare. I mean, you, I mean, it's rare as far as... You, this is an information most people have, yeah. and it's just a few things that I've got or have learned that are, you know, are not bad. They're just privacy issues, and mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk about them, just like I'm not going to use his name right. in, you know, in print or in a recorded situation until you know until he's passed away yeah yeah i just don't think it's right i i respect that and as far as all the the, for all the fake news and things going around uh troy knows this better than anybody but you can learn a lot by doing research (laughs) yeah and reading headlines (laughs) on social media does not count as research i just want to throw that out there uh okay so moving on so after the exorcism there was a document which you said 48 people signed attesting to the legitimacy of this case. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people. It is. It is. And these were all people who were in some way involved from family members to uh, people at the rectory, you know, people at the hospital. I mean, there were a lot of people at the hospital. Um, you know, we're not talking about two or three monks. We're talking about quite a few of the brothers. And then, of course, the, the, the laymen, the nurses and the staff members and the orderlies, you know, all of them, you know, were – you know, yes, I mean, yes, you can say it's skewed because they're all, you know, Catholic, you know, people working for Catholic institutions. So, you know, whatever, they've all been, they all drank the Kool-Aid, right. you know, but 
On the other hand, all of them attested the fact that they had seen supernatural things, or at least paranormal things, things they couldn't explain, and they they believed that Robbie was possessed. Mm-hmm. Now, not everyone did, uh, and I, yeah, I, we can we can get to this now, I guess. I mean, yeah. Um, also, f- uh, Troy, Flavor Aid, please. Yeah, oh yeah, I know Flavor Aid, I know. But, but anyway, I digress. Um, um, yeah, we you know got- we we can get to this because you know we have the diary and we have a couple of reports that were filed and we have the forty eight witnesses who signed the statements, but. Um, for whatever reason, the church has always said they don't really know what happened. Yeah. That's the official statement mm-hmm. that was given out by the chancery. Um, they just shrugged. That they just the... said, well, we, you know, they've got enough information to say, you know, oh, yeah, it, it was real or it wasn't real. Um, Archbishop Ritter had an investigation done mm-hmm. after the reports were all filed, and he brought in one of those, one of those priests who, you know, which— you know, I, I always wanted that job. I yeah. always wanted the job of being the guy who goes around and investigates miracles and stuff. Yeah. Even though, you know, not really a Catholic and, I mean, not really. And, um, you know, I'm certainly never going to become a priest. But I always thought if they needed somebody from outside mm-hmm. to, to take that job or to at least assist with that job, it would be the coolest job. Does he... To go around and look at the... Virgin Mary that appears on the sides of buildings or the statues that bleed or whatever. I it's thinking of, well anyway, so they had one of these guys come in yeah. and interview everybody and file his own report. And um, you know, all these witnesses who who believe that Robbie was demonically possessed, but the the investigator didn't believe it. Yeah, it's a, he the, interviewed the witnesses and he even interviewed a couple of psychiatrists who said that, well, I don't see anything in this case that says it was supernatural. This seems to be a mental illness. Right. Um, the examiner kind of ended up saying, the investigator said that he thought it was, you know, just poltergeist activity. And, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit more here at the very end. Yeah. But um, because I promised at the end I would give you my personal opinion on everything. And right. I, I, I we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, So this investigator, though, he was a priest, actually? Yeah. So, and then when he turned in his investigation to Archbishop Ritter, who had now had gotten all the reports, had gotten all these witness statements, and then he was given this report by this examiner, the investigator, who said he didn't believe that it was a possession. Um, Archbishop Ritter just said, well, you know what? I think at this point this is all becoming very counterproductive. Let's just drop it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, the real, that's the real reason that this was never released. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't – I mean, they could have released the whole thing officially and kept – Robbie's family's name out of it, but they chose not to because it was just a, a conflicting report. Right. I mean, they just didn't, nobody could agree on anything. And he felt that if they released it, that they would just be opening themselves up to, you know, opening a new can of worms. Right. So they just dropped the whole thing and said, you know, we don't know. Yeah. Now, it didn't matter that, you know, that there were priests who were involved in it firsthand. See, that's, that's always my problem. And, you know, and we're, I know we're, we'll get to this. I know we're going to get to this. I know you want to no, walk please, through this. please go for it. My, my problem with it is that everyone who screams this thing was fake or was a hoax, every single person who says that wasn't there. Right. They didn't see it for themselves. They didn't see any of the stuff that happened. You know, there were some people who, you know, have in more recent times have, have put on a really good case for the fact that it could be a hoax up until the point they left Maryland. Mm-hmm. So, like, the first two weeks of the case, 
they're convinced the whole thing was fake because that could have been. Yeah. But they don't know what happened in St. Louis. They've never followed up, never researched any of it. It's just the stuff in Maryland. You can't do that. You have to look at the entire thing and, um, and, and make a judgment from there. And again, this investigator, I'm sure, was, you know, um, was, was fair. But on the other hand, you know, he wasn't there either, mm-hmm. you know, and talked to people who, who were there, but yet didn't believe them enough to say that, well, you know, boy, sure looks real. Nothing like that was ever done. Yeah. I, li- so. I like to imagine him with a little notepad and like a raincoat and the hat, but still with the little priest thing. Oh, you know, sure. It looks like the private eye. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's interesting because I've always thought, you know, they, the Catholic Church could have taken this and used it to scare people and, sure. and to, you know, be like, hey, the devil's real. You well, know, join and that's the faith. what a lot of the people involved wanted to do. Right. And including then including Father Bowdern. I could also so. see it if you're thinking a little bit ahead of that, you could be like, no, let's deny it because then people are going to think it's so scary that we can't release it and then we'll have the same effect. Mm-hmm. And so either way, it seems like the conclusion was the same because yeah. people did get scared when right. it came out yeah. and um, there was a spike in exorcisms well, and exorcism When activity. the movie came out, right. it, it wasn't, when the, when the story leaked out, you know, in the newspaper when it ran in the Washington Post. Um, when that story came out in the newspaper, it was – people were interested, mm-hmm. but nobody was really scared by Got it. It, it was okay. a newspaper story. Um, it would be another, you know, 20-plus years before the movie came out of The Exorcist. And then when people heard it was based on a true story, that's when they lost their shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's when it really, you know – it right. turned into what we have today. Thank right. you demons on ghost television shows. yes so. yes and you talk about some people that were there um you know people that were there think something happened and so i wanted to talk a little bit about your you had i didn't know you had four interviews with howard yeah. in 2004 yeah. 2005 yeah and you talked to him about do you think it's valid do you think you could have faked it do you think it was mental illness and while it seems some of his answers might have I don't know, evolved over time. It still seemed like he wasn't saying, no, this was totally a hoax. No, he, yeah, he, 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 he didn't say that he thought it was a hoax. Um, he just wouldn't commit, and he never really committed, although he became more, it seemed like the, 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 longer, the, the longer it went on, the closer to his, the end mm-hmm. for him, he became more... Um, skeptical of what he no, saw? No, not, not skeptical, less skeptical, really, less of skeptical. what he saw. Um, because at first he was, I think, a little jaded, and that was my, my thing, was is that I couldn't imagine this guy would want to talk about this again. Right. I mean, seriously. And you said he seemed pretty Very open. gracious yeah. and very, very willing to talk about it. And, um, I mean, I th- when he knew I was taking it seriously, you mm-hmm. know, it wasn't, it wasn't some kind of, you know, I, was, I wasn't doing a blog. Right, you weren't just then. some you jackass. Know, it was, yeah, it was, I was really taking it seriously and really wanted some answers and about some things I didn't really understand. And, you know, he explained lots of things, lots of things that I put into the book were from the understanding from him that he was able to give me because obviously I don't know how an exorcism works. I've never seen one. Uh, but he was able to, I mean, I had the, the diaries, but he was able to fill in a lot of holes, mm-hmm. you know, so, which was great. But, um, yeah, he, he, he wouldn't really commit and say, well, I'm sure that it was, he was possessed. I mean, he did say, you know, Father Bowdern always believed it, and there were things he couldn't explain. I mean, he was quick to point out the fact that, you know, he was sitting right there when those, in the, you know, our last episode, we talked about the writing that appeared on Robbie's legs that day, and, and he was right there and saw it happen and never could explain it, you know, um, but he would would talk about, you know, being punched in the face by him and, it, you know, broke his nose yeah. at one point. 
And, um, you know, but he'd say, oh, I don't, you know, but he was a kid, I'm sure. No, no big deal. It wasn't any, he was no, one time he told me, um, well, you know, he was no Mike Tyson, (laughs) you know, but on the other hand, broke his nose, you know, and it's kind of like the story about, well, no, I never saw him. I never saw him levitate, even though somebody else told me they did, but you know, he said, I never saw him levitate, but then he'd talk about how the bed levitated off the floor. And I thought, that seems like even a bigger deal because it's going to be yeah. a lot heavier, you know, yeah. but so it's, I don't, you know, it's just, it's just weird. It's a, something I meant to ask about uh, that we skipped over. Do we know, uh, you mentioned Father Bowder and he might've taken another exorcism in Steubenville, Ohio. Yeah, we don't know if that's true. Um, I'm curious that's a about story. That. That's a story that I've heard. Um, it's a rumor. I don't know if it's the case, if it really happened or not. Um, if it did, no information about it has ever been published anywhere that I've ever found. Mm-hmm. Um, that, but that was a rumor that I had heard. But I mean, as you know, in this particular story, rumors are—I mean, there are rumors yeah. everywhere and stories. But that is one that that I had heard. And again, I can't vouch for it, but it'd be kind of cool if it was true. Yeah, you know, like you know, have rosary will travel kind of yeah. thing, you know, and, and go around doing exorcisms. I don't know. But By the second time he um, shows up, he's just smoking cigarettes. Like I've seen. Some yeah, shit. I've, I've already seen this before. So, but you know, or, you know, that could have been somebody, somebody could have made that up after the movie came out because, you know, if you remember the movie, the demon that father Marin comes to Georgetown to get rid of out of Reagan, you know, he supposedly had battled before mm, in, in right. Africa. So, you know, it was supposed to be like a revenge thing. It was like a showdown between the two. And, you know, somebody could have made that up for all I know. But it's interesting to consider. I mean, maybe they were going for a sequel. Maybe that was the uh, the whole thing mm. for the movie. Yeah. Um, well, they had them. But they oh, were, I know. Yeah. The I, second one's really bad. I saw so. a couple of them pop up when I was doing some research. The and third like, one no, is, a, is a whole different, is a kind of a different story. And it's actually, Extras 3 is actually pretty good. I know we're getting ahead of ourselves here with the movie discussion. But, um the first one, Exorcist 1 and, and 3, are actually both pretty good. Mm-hmm. Neither prequel, neither version of the prequels not worth were it. very good. All you right. Know, they, well, were, they were kind of re- not great. That's, well, that's <laughs> yeah. good to know. Uh, some honorable mentions, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so this is the part where I want to talk about the Unexplained Files stuff. So if we want to oh, okay. cut or whatever, okay. we can. So something else I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, we mentioned, maybe it was last episode or the episode before, that you met with Brother Greg in 2014, and yes. that ended up being on a show called The Unexplained Files, yes. which is season two, episode one. Uh, I watched it last night. Yeah. I loved it. Um, yeah. First thing I it, wanted to— It's really, honestly, it's one of the best things that I think I've been in. Yeah. You know, the crew was great. The um, The people I worked with were all great, mm-hmm. and they let me do pretty much whatever I wanted. Was that you your know? BMW? Yeah, it that was, was that was nice. I was yeah. wondering, I was like, did they give <laughs> yeah. you like a really no, nice car? I, w- I wish they'd have loaned it, but no, it was mine. So at oh, the time, that's awesome. Uh, something that I could not, I couldn't shake is the whole time. Every time the the narrator would talk, he would say exorcist, like exorcist. And Me, I did no, not oh, you. The, the narrator gave oh, me like yeah. the exorcism, exorcism, and I just I couldn't stop that. I, could, was, I couldn't. Yeah, and holy omelets. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and something else. So we've. We've known each other for about two years now, maybe, right? Yeah. I would say, arguably, I have heard your voice more than most people since I've gone through (laughs) Mm -hmm. all these hours. 
I would agree. They yeah. sped up everyone's vocals in that episode, so it was everyone's really weird. voice is higher. Yeah, it's very odd. I don't know why they did that. I know I, they I had to like know. probably a lot for time, but you probably. could speed up vocals and then still lower them back down. Yeah. And I don't know why they didn't do that. Maybe technology was different, but I know I, I, will, I, I sound kind of high pitched. Everybody does. I, I don't even yeah. know them, but once I yeah. realized you did, yeah. um, I thought it was funny. I actually I watched it and then I showed Leah and I was like, just tell I me if you they noticed were anything. Trying to get more into the time allotted. Of course, it's a time. You know thing. what I mean? Because it was a it's an hour show, but it was cut into two segments yeah and i don't remember what the other one was after me but it was something about like wild or boars or something because anyway, they, they take a hard right turn very weird at one point but yeah. i showed leah and i was like just tell me if you notice anything and you got one sentence in and she goes what's wrong with his voice <laughs> and i was like yes yeah. exactly yeah, it's very strange um i thought it was it was kind of i know you only have so much control over you know what they put in and yeah. how they do well, those yeah. things but but there were there were things that came up that i wouldn't do or say yeah because I've done this long enough. Uh-huh. You know, I've been in this doing this long enough. And if you're you're wanting me to do something that I'm not going to do, mm-hmm. I'm just not going to do it. And you can either tell me that I'm fired and that's fine. Yeah. Whatever the hell, I'll just go home. Or you can do it my way. And all you have is and, your reputation. You well, wanna... and that's the thing. And these guys didn't have any idea. I mean, and, well, and I shouldn't say these guys. The, the crew is fantastic. Yeah. Um, I had a director and a producer I was dealing with. They were all from England. Which was which was fun. It was fun to hang out with them for you know, a couple of weeks because we actually spent about two weeks filming this, and we were all over the place. And um, you know, one of the guys uh, I'm I'm still friends with. We stay in touch, mm-hmm. um, but you you always make friends with the crew. Yeah, you don't you know the, because they'll always then take your side against the director, mm-hmm. and Good that know. can be. And you know they they wanted me to do stuff that I wouldn't do, um, like. Um, in one scene, we met with the official exorcist of the Indianapolis Archdiocese, yes. if you remember. I have some nice thoughts guy. about him in here. He's a nice guy, uh, but he, they wanted him to perform an exorcism on me. Well, he sits you down in the chair because you asked, like, what all does an exorcism entail? Yeah. And he's like, well, sit down in the chair. And yeah. we, I was like, oh, but, shit. Yeah, but they were going to really do it, and I wouldn't do it. Yeah. I said, no, I'm not doing this. And I just refused. I mean, I just said, I am not doing this. And, That's amazing. Uh, you know, and Rob, my friend on the crew, was like, hey, listen, Troy's not comfortable with this. He's not going to do it. Yeah. Because we argued for about a half hour. And I said, I'm not doing it. So I'm going to go home if we can't straighten this out. Right. I'm done. Yeah. You know, so well, he, he, I called Lisa and I said, listen, they want me to do this. And she's like don't do it yeah, <laughs> you know just that's just too weird don't do it i said i'm not gonna do it it's so. very weird he did so he did walk you through some of the steps but yes. what i didn't like is and i wouldn't have known this had we not done the podcast but you said like what are some of the criterium for exorcism mm-hmm. and he didn't go into any of the legit stuff he just said like yeah. you know maybe levitation well yeah because and... now it's getting it's so loose now right because everybody and their brother wants to be an exorcist now yeah and now it's gotten so loose but in 1949 and and as there still should be, and I'm sure there still is with with most legitimate priests and and Catholic organizations, I'm sure they have they still stick to that hard criteria mm-hmm. that I quoted from earlier yeah. in these episodes. Yep. This case never fit that ever. Right. I mean, even when some of the stories came along later that that filled in the holes with some of the criteria, it's all like third-hand accounts right. from somebody. And it's all after the fact, too. Right, exactly. So, you know, there there were there were problems with this all along. And and then, yeah, that guy was just loose, you know, right. with, with what could, you know, what it could be. And, and I think that a lot of these guys these days, and this is not a 
criticism of the church in general, just some of this exorcism stuff, um, they're, they're looking at it more as a placebo effect, which we did talk about early mm-hmm. on. And I know it seems like five years ago that we started this part of the podcast. It does. But um, we were talking about it being as a kind of a placebo for people with um, maybe a mental disorder of some kind who believed they were possessed. Right. And now having an exorcism, you know, okay, well, that got rid of it, and it makes them feel better. Yeah. You know, it makes everybody feel good and happy and, you know— and I, I think that that's become much more standard these days. Mm-hmm. So you don't need all that criteria because you're not going to be locked in a bedroom, you know, um, you know, strapped down to a bed while, you know, a young priest and an old priest scream at you <laughs> for hours every night. You know, it's just it's different. I think it's just different now do than th- it was. Do then. you think them not meeting all of those check marks maybe had something to do with the church not wanting to release information about it later too i'm sure that was probably part of it too yeah i and that may have been and we'll never know Mm because we're never going to get to see it but that might have been something that was part of the investigators he may have the same issues i did and said where in the world did we find the all that this matched the criteria yeah you know i don't believe it but yes okay you tell me that things were flying around okay we'll go with that but i don't think it was a demon you know that i think that's the gist i think of what he turned in Mm -hmm. and so again we've never We'll never see it. But, right. You know. Something else that I thought was interesting. I never I never thought about this, and I know it's just a minor detail, but um, in the show, when they're doing like little reenactments, the word hell appears on the boy, but it appears backwards. Right. And so I was right. thinking, so it's either writing from the inside, or they want him to see it on the mirror. Right, I know. And I, I never know. thought about God. it, but I yeah. thought it was funny. Um, <laughs> you also met with someone named Terry Cooper, who was a professor oh, yeah. of psychology. Yeah. yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah we he's hadn't, down in St. Louis. Yeah, we hadn't talked about him. And, yeah, um, well, no, we hadn't. I was um, a psych major, so I'm just curious. Yeah, about well, whatever. he was he was part of it. He he came in to kind of be. I mean, I was I was my my role in that was to be just the guy gathering material, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and Terry came in to talk about it because you know we were looking at this. Was it a mental illness? You know, and, and he is he's looked into this case a lot, too, and then he studied it a lot. And it was really great to make contact with him. Mm-hmm. He's a real good guy, super smart, and um, sent me a book that he had done on, you know, psychological aspects of a lot of things. And so he was interested in the case. And, and But his opinion was is that, you know, as, as mine was about some of the, the hoax stuff, is that you don't you don't magically get cured. Yeah. You know, if you've got, you know, something seriously wrong with you, if you're, you know, say he had hallucinate, Robbie was hallucinating or the whole thing was psychosomatic. And and some of that could fit. We mm-hmm. talked about that in other episodes. For sure. You know, people can make things happen with their minds to their bodies and make themselves sick or well. And um, the other thing was that, you know, maybe these priests were so, you know, their religious beliefs pushed on to Robbie. It's a mass It made him believe it, you know, made yeah. him believe it. So, you know, there were as a lot of this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, you have to remember that at the time of Christ, it was believed that demons caused mental illness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, a lot of people who, you know, read the Bible and believe that it's a historical record rather than just a story to make people be nice, right. um, believe that the incidents of Christ casting out demons 
was really just him doing miraculous cures, mm-hmm. you know, uh, curing people of mental illnesses, not really casting out demons. It, we don't take that literally kind of thing. But then now, we've, now we're four steps down and not taking the Bible literally. So, I mean, you can't have it both ways, but you, you see what I'm saying. So yep. he's curing people. So people think that maybe Robbie was mentally ill or maybe he had multiple personality disorder, which is extremely rare. Can I, can I talk I mean, about that for yeah, a second? please. So, okay, as I said again, uh, I'm not a psychologist. I have a degree in psychology, but a bachelor's degree. That doesn't, don't tell me your problems. I can't fix them. Um, and I'm, I'm also a frequent patient of a Freudian psychologist. <laughs> so I want to talk about multiple personality disorder is DID. It's dissociative identity right, disorder. Right. And I also want to clarify that it's not being schizophrenic. And I'm not saying this to you. I'm just saying right. I hear no, this no. all no, the time, right. Right. and I just want to, to kind of clarify that these are not the same thing. No. They're no. very different. And I did learn that dissociative and possession trance disorder are actually under review for the DSM-5, so they might eventually be disorders. Oh I really hope they don't make yeah. it into that wow. book, yeah. um, but I thought that was very interesting. Um, well, because, you know, the, you know, uh, people were saying, you know, he's he's Sybil. You know, yeah. he's got multiple, he's, it's the girl in session nine, yeah. you know, he's got all these okay. personalities, but and who also, uh, I don't want to, no, spoiler, no, 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 I almost no, no, no. had a spoiler there, no, no, no. but you know, this, so they say maybe it's that, or maybe he had childhood schizophrenia, mm-hmm. you know, as a se- completely separate thing, which is, I mean, schizophrenia is something that comes along in your late teens and into say your twenties, but there are rare cases of childhood schizophrenia coming along. Um, you know, at the age of 10 where people start hearing voices and stuff. So it happens. Or the other, the other, my other favorite is that he had Tourette's. Oh. Yeah. So that's why he was cursing and screaming and twitching and, you know, calling people names and, and threatening to kill them and all this stuff. Right. But again, though, the problem with all of those, with every mental illness thing that we're talking about here is he was somehow treated, cured. Yeah. Without any kind of treatment, medication, nothing. So suddenly, whatever you whatever you're saying he had, it just disappeared. So which is harder to believe, right. that he was possessed by some sort of outward entity, a demon or spirit or whatever, or that he had this potentially life-ruining problem in 1949 right. um, that suddenly just went away, and then he was fine for the rest of his life? Yeah. So which is it? You know, so which is harder to believe. So, you know, that doesn't really hold up either. Yeah, that's that's the problem I have. But and and that's that's essentially what Terry was saying in in the show was that, you know, you know, none of these things that he had really fits anything. It doesn't fit any kind of disorder. You know, you you have to fit like 12 different ones. And where did they all go? Right. You know. Right. So well, we mentioned it earlier, but so Reverend Schultz eventually breaks the secrecy of the story at a meeting in Washington, D.C. Um, I thought it was interesting that it was a branch of the Society for Parapsychology mm-hmm. um, that he witnessed, witnessed a quote unquote poltergeist in the home of Mr. and Mrs. John Doe, right. um, who lived in a Washington suburb. He used Robbie's actual first name and told him the strange manifestations he'd seen in the home. He added that the boy was later taken to a city in Midwest, but did not speak at the exorcism, which he had no real information about. But somehow the secret, somehow the uh-huh. secret leaked out anyway, hits the papers. Well, there was a reporter there at the meeting. So, because I in, 19, how it in 1949, that... the press actually gave a shit about meetings of the you know, Society for Psychical Research, you know, kind of thing where, you know, that, 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 that went away eventually. But at the time that was still a novelty, you know, um, I mean, he had been in contact and, and I think maybe I'd mentioned this at one point, but 
he had been in contact with J.B. Rhine at the Rhine Institute okay. in North Carolina. And um, he never investigated the story, but he did say, well, it, you know, it sounds like a poltergeist. And it did. Based 100%. on the things that were happening that, that Reverend Schultz saw and the things that happened in his home when Robbie was there, it did seem like a poltergeist case. Yeah. But again, nobody followed through as to what happened next when they got to St. Louis yeah. because things definitely took another turn and away from it just being a poltergeist. If, if it had never gotten any worse than what happened in Maryland, then... I would have thought, then this would probably have gone down in records we'd be writing. Somebody, well, we probably wouldn't still be talking about it, but it would be a minor poltergeist case that happened in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. You know, um, maybe J.B. Ryan would have investigated it if it, they had still been in Maryland at the time and that kind of thing, yeah. you know. Um, but instead, it, it, they went to St. Louis and things took a whole different turn. Yeah. But based on what he saw, you know, he, he knew there had been, well, I'm sure the family must have told him that there that that Robbie had gone through an exorcism when he showed up at their house to find out where their You'd think where the money it. that they put in the offering plate was right. you know Where's because they're not bringing their dropping their their cash off anymore so he came to check on them I don't I shouldn't say that I'm sure he was a decent guy eh, I'll say know. it I've been to you know I actually we I don't know if that I can't remember if that made it into the show we actually went to his church No I Reverend, I, okay so maybe that didn't make it I in don't think but so. I actually went to Reverend Schultz's church and spoke to the current pastor to get his opinion on Wow. It. And his opinion was, well, you know, the Catholics know about I swear to God, the Catholics are that really the was ones who the know show about too. these things. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, nice guy. He knew, you know, he knew kind of the basics behind it, you yeah. know. Uh, but it probably, because there wasn't anything earth-shattering that went on, but, you know, there, there was, in black and white, there's everybody's names and, again, you know, all that stuff. So... Right. Well, so I was going to save this towards the end, but um, I want to save a lot of that for your thoughts on what happened. And this is kind of uh, a nice transition because I I have thoughts about this, too, now that I've I've, uh, read a lot of this and gone through this. And I'm curious to hear what you would have to say. So after studying and learning a lot about schizophrenia um, in particular, after, how can I say this, experimenting in college, having a lot of uh, mind-altering experiences and things, what... Do you think – here's my thought, and I want to know if, if what your rebuttal would be against this. Could this just be – like the mind is capable of just ridiculous things, and poltergeist activity has a lot of times been thought to be people doing things themselves, oh, not absolutely. ghosts, just their right. mind no, moving absolutely. shit. Yeah, that's, so that's much the, about, yeah, so much about the brain we don't that's understand. That's the real definition of a poltergeist outbreak. Right. It's the person. And do, yeah. you, th- and do you think that possibly this could have been a crazy – poltergeist situation but then exorcists exorcists and catholics and everything were brought in immediately and it had so it has that religious like overtone as as opposed to somebody just with a crazy brain well if if it had only been well and and that's what i was saying if it had only been the stuff that happened in maryland Mm -hmm. or some of the early stuff that happened in st louis with you know furniture moving around and stuff and the bed shaking and you know um you know it would be easy to believe that that's what it was but There are, as far as I'm aware, I don't know of any poltergeist cases that involved people going into these trances and Mm. shutting down the way that he did and blacking out like that. Um, You know, some of the most famous ones, um, I mean, back when I was in high school, there was one that that started in Columbus, Ohio, 
a girl named Tina Resch and her adopted family and the house she lived in. Um, it was really well documented by newspaper reporters, TV reporters, photographers who would come to the house and would see the things happen. And she was completely, you know, normal for what was going on. I mean, there wasn't, she wasn't going in any kind of trances, things weren't following or she wasn't saying things. She was just there. And when she was there, things happened around her. All this energy was making things happen. Um, so, like I said, if it had just been what happened in Maryland, I, I'd find that easy enough to believe, mm-hmm. even if things got worse. But, you know, the trances and the, you know, the firsthand accounts of, you know, the levitation and some of the things that he said and did, you know, I just have a hard time believing that it was just, you know, just a mental thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I certainly could be a big part of it, you know, and and there still could be part of it, it which is we're getting ahead of ourselves okay, because yeah, yeah don't don't spoil yeah, your ending I, I've here. got an ending to this okay for, for me personally right that's just my gonna be my personal opinion well, right. well, well we can let's that. move on then yeah. from that um so uh okay so at, at father Bowden's request um after everything hits the papers um William Blatty was gonna he was writing a book changed the name of, of Robbie for well you know book. he heard he first read the newspaper article yeah he was he, in college he was a student right at, at Georgetown and um there is a there's a great interview with um, a priest who went on to be an advisor to him for the book and the movie, and he was his um, he was his uh, advisor at school. He was one of his teachers, and he had gotten in touch with him after he'd read this newspaper article, and then years later, and, and asked him about it, and asked him about exorcisms and that kind of thing, and then. Years later, uh, like 20 years later, when he was getting ready to write the book, he got back in touch with him and said, you know, can you put me in touch with Father Bowdern? And and he did, but there were also things that he wouldn't do. He wouldn't give him a copy of the diary mm. uh, because at the time nobody had him. And uh, but he so he didn't do that. And he, but he did put him in touch with Father Bowdern, who couldn't really say much. Um, he did interviews with him, which is how we ended up with Father Marin, obviously. Right. I mean, right. he's a you know, he's definitely. Father Bowder and yeah. Father Marin is, right. you know, in the book. The parallels, um, yeah. But, you know, he changed things. He changed the location. He changed the setting. He changed, you know, Reagan to this little girl instead of a boy, uh, which is, I think, what makes the book more terrifying and definitely makes the movie more terrifying because I don't know why. I guess just because, you know, we think differently. I guess little girls, little boys are, are shits usually. Yep. And little girls usually can be so sweet. And, you know, and when you watch that movie and in the first developing parts of the movie, I mean, Linda Blair's she's a little doll in that. Yeah, I mean, she's sure. so sweet. And, you know, when she and that's what makes it so scary when she changes, mm-hmm. you know. And um, so he changed all these things to try to get away from the, the real story. Right. Uh, but it's definitely you definitely see elements of it. I just rewatched it the other night. Just yeah, you, I you text me. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't I hadn't watched. I probably hadn't seen it in a year or two. And so I wanted to watch it again. And it still works. Keeps me glued. You said you watched the director's cut, right? I watched the director's cut, which really isn't that much different. But it does have the spider thing when she comes yes, down the stairs, yes. you know, which was not in the original cut. Um, Why do they cut that out? It's so cool. Um, well, the first time, the fir- the the original time, the first time I ever saw it, the un- the cut scene 
it looks really fake. Mm. But I think when they did the re-release, the director's cut anniversary re-release, they cleaned it up a little bit. Got it. Um, so it looks better now, and it is it's 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 scary. You know? Yeah, it's... but not as to, to me that's scary. But that's like shock scary. The scary part is when she walks into when Chris is having the party at the house. And uh, Father Joe is playing the piano, and then everybody's gathered around singing. And mm-hmm. she walks into the Reagan walks into the room and looks at that astronaut and says, "You're gonna die up there." And yeah. I thought, "That's scary." <laughs> yes, that, I would that's leave the party. Scary. Yeah. Well, that was, I think that was the end of the party. Yes. Now, of course, then she, you know, pissed all over the. I was rug, gonna say but, right. That's right. You know, that was the up. end of the. That was the end of the party. So Blatty was actually tapped to do the script. Is that common for an author to be? pulled in uh, to depends. do the script? Um, I know Jillian Flynn did the script for uh, Gone Girl, and oh. I think Paula Hawkins may have done the script for Girl on the Train. I'm not sure, but um, Stephen King has done a couple. Um, he which wrote, ones, though? Well, I know. that's now. Well, Pet Cemetery. he wrote that screenplay, which is which works. Mm-hmm. Um, Maximum Overdrive, on the other hand, is no. <laughs> it's awful. No. But he also did the script for the uh, 1990s, 94, maybe? 94? No, it had to be later than that. He did the script for The, the Shining, the television version, not right. the movie. Right, I've never seen um, that one. It, it, it's, it follows the book much closer, but... But it's got it's got some problems. Yeah, because he's not happy but, with the shiny. Well, I right? don't like the I mean, the original is fine as long as if you watch it just as that mm-hmm. and don't compare it to the book yeah. because it it really doesn't work because it's it's everything that the book is not. Yeah, I mean it's about a haunted hotel, but the movie is about a guy who just goes crazy, right? And who's crazy from the very beginning because I mean I love Jack Nicholson, but when he's sitting there in Ullman's office, I mean. Would you would you give this guy your hotel to watch all yeah, winter? How Acts desperate like a complete are you? Nut. Yeah. So yeah, I just um, I've got I've got problems with it. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in talking about movies, we could go on all day. Yeah, about we we the will eventually. I have, but um, but I I you know, and the, I've seen the I've got the it's only the DVD. You can't stream it anywhere. Mm-hmm. The of the the television version of The Shining and um, Oh boy, why can I not think of that actor's name that plays Jack in it? It's he played Brian on Wings. You know, Tim Daly was yeah, the brother. Yeah, and I, yeah. Why can I not think of his name? Because I like him a lot. Uh, um, I, can pick, I see his face. I know, me too. And I can't, I can't think we, of it. If you want to Google it, for yeah. A second. Why don't I just pull it up on? I IMDb. actually, I haven't read The Shining, but I read about three chapters uh, when I was in a, a little place in Elsa actually overnight one night, and I the book was there, and I just yeah, started reading funny. it, and I was like, "This is Stephen Weber." Stephen Weber, yeah. yeah. It's like this is terrifying. Yeah. Um, so let's see. So the film's film opens on December twenty sixth, nineteen seventy three, uh, and then story started. Which is you know pre. Let's put out big movies at Christmas. Yeah. And yet they put. Uh, I was what wondering how long they've been doing to put that. Put out at Christmas. You know, because they they didn't do that back then. That was a weirdly, that was a dead zone for movies mm-hmm. at Christmas time back in the seventies. Huh. Nobody put out. I mean, there were no big blockbuster. They didn't do summer movie releases until Jaws came out. Mm-hmm. That became like the first big summer movie. And then after that, they started doing that. And same way with Christmas. But that seemed like an odd – I mean, they just kind of dumped it for some reason. I yeah. don't know why they would put that out at Christmas time, but whatever reason they did. So they were, It was a late um, Oscar hopeful, maybe. They were I trying guess, to get it in right I then. Yes. Well, the, you know, there's a great book called The Making of the Exorcist. Um, it has been out of print for years and years and years. Um, it was a purple paperback. 
uh, book. And it, it talks about all those kinds of things. And if you can lay your hands on a copy of that, it's a really good read. It's really interesting. It talks about all of the things that went into the making of it. Um, and it also talks about, and, you know, I didn't put this all into the story, but, you know, there were a lot of people who believed that the, the you know, the making of the film was cursed in some way. I've written about that a little bit, about, you know, all the bad things that happened. Um, Ellen Burstyn was injured in that scene where she comes into the room and, and then, the like, the force makes her fly across the room. Yeah. They had, like, a rope attached to her and they jerked her backward to make her fly backward like that. And she really got hurt. I mean, like really hurt her back. She was doing her own stunts. Yeah. She was definitely doing her own stunts and her scream of pain. She swears is real. And that's what made it into the film. But, um, so there were a lot of bad things that happened. A lot of people, there were several people who died, family members that died. And, you know, I guess at one point, uh, freaking brought in a priest to bless the set and, you know, um, but Joe Nicola, who was a, a priest at Georgetown at the time, and he, he is in the movie. You actually see him sometimes show up in the movie. He was one of the consultants on set, you know, came in and, you know, they, they blessed the set right. and the stuff. And, you know, at one point the whole set burned down. And, I mean, it was crazy. There's all kinds of crazy stuff. Mm. But, you know, some of them will talk about, well, I don't know if it was cursed, but, you know, there was a lot of weird stuff that yeah. happened. And, you know, Max von Sydow, who played Father Marin, was – actually like 40 oh, and they yeah? made him up to look old i mean we yeah. he now he, he looks, looks like father <laughs> Marin in 1973 but at the time he didn't they had to make him look old which um which worked then but now when you when i watch it at home on like a you know 4k high def tv it looks like makeup you yeah. know i don't think they'd planned for that you know when they when they did the movie it was kind of funny but right but i mean he's so great in it everybody's great in it jason miller was great i mean it's it's a great movie it really is um even if you don't leave out the just just look at it as a horror film it's a it's an intellectual horror film before they were making intellectual horror films right you know it's it's a really great movie yeah, it's still terrifying to this day. And yeah. I'm, I'm going to dive into some thoughts and stats about the movie. Uh, but before, just a little side note, um, I'm going to say this again. Hereditary was the best horror film of 2018. If you, haven't, if you haven't seen it, well, We're going to talk more about that in it. January. Yes. And so I, finally, we'll talk about it some more. I can't wait. Um, so, okay. So stories start making the rounds that audience members are fainting and vomiting in the theaters, uh, which is gross. I mean, movie theaters smell bad enough already. <laughs> the floors are already sticky. Exactly. Yeah. But then scores of already disturbed people begin showing up at churches who claim they are possessed. Uh-huh. And I'm guessing exorcism rates or, oh, uh, you know, start to rise after that. And uh, this is a quote from from the episode. But you said, as anyone who watches television today knows, outlandish claims about demons and those who wish they were demonologists can be found on some of the worst paranormal shows on the cable networks. We can thank The Exorcist for all that. Fantastic. Yeah. I don't know who you could be talking about. Uh, yeah. But well, there's plenty of them out there. And, you know, there are all these people. Every time you see... Listen, guys, when, when you go and, and you see that somebody claims to be an exorcist or they claim to be um, a demonologist, look, look for their credentials, and you're going to find they don't actually have any. Um, people will say they're an exorcist, and then you go to see what church that is, and usually it's something made up or you know, an, an offshoot of something or other that isn't, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say it's not a real church, but they're not Catholic priests for the most part. Um, and I'm not saying you have to be a Catholic priest if you're going to be an exorcist, but 
you probably should be. you probably should be and that's a little bit more of a credibility factor at least as far as i'm concerned and anybody can call them i mean i can call myself a demonologist <laughs> right. if i want to right uh, because i've read a couple of books about it and written a couple of books about that kind of stuff but that certainly does not make me an expert and neither does it make anyone who claims to be on the internet or on television a actual demonologist unless you've studied at the vatican or something you're probably not right um somebody handed you a business card it's like a yeah, dave that's exorcist. that's gonna be my personal opinion on that and you can you can at me on twitter or you can complain about it if you want to but you're not going to change my mind so, so moving on to more thoughts about the film so it became one of the highest grossing films in history grossing over 441 million worldwide in the aftermath of the various re-releases and it was the first horror film to be nominated for the academy award for best picture I was actually joking about that earlier, but okay. Yeah. Um, it was named the scariest film of all time by Entertainment Weekly in 1999, mm -hmm. Movies.com in 2010, viewers of AMC in uh, 2006, and the editors of Time Out in 2014. In 2010, the Library of Congress selected the film to be preserved as part of its National Film Registry as being a television series of, oh, I'm sorry, as being, I'm sorry, as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. And then on January 22nd, 2016, 20th Century Fox did the, uh, announced they were doing the television show. The yeah, Exorcist. they did I a haven't couple watched of that. seasons. It was okay. Um, I watched it. Um, the first season was an indirect sequel, sort yeah. of. Um, the, this uh, family starts having problems, and this young girl becomes possessed, and you find out, and Sorry, spoiler alert, but the show's not on anymore. So if you what? haven't seen it, I apologize. But um, it turns out that her mother is actually Reagan, and she's changed oh, her name. Gina okay. Davis played played her Got as it. an adult, and it was actually Reagan. So it is kind of a sequel to The Exorcist. Um, the second season was the same priests, what with a different case mm -hmm. uh, in somewhere else, and. It was good. I mean, John Cho was in the second season. He's oh, yeah. great in I like it. Him. Yeah, and I liked both actors that played the priests. Um, but it just, for whatever reason, it didn't catch on. The first mm -hmm. season, I think, did pretty well. The second season didn't. Not so much. Um, and they they canceled it after the second season. I've I've got both of them on my Amazon account, and and I liked it. I thought mm. it was a decent series. I might have to check so, it out. Yeah. Uh, also, Roger Ebert gave the film a four out of four star review. And I have to bring it up because uh, Martin Scorsese plays the Exorcist yeah. on his list in the eleven scariest horror films of all time. And again, we we've I've I've, I've again and I, while I love Martin Scorsese, but I kind of wonder what scares this guy I know. because he's had a few. I mean, this one I think he's right on, yes. but he's had a couple of others that made it on the list, and I'm thinking. Really, Marty? It's gonna it's gonna be <laughs> yeah. a running thing now. I'm gonna yeah. look for the Martin Scorsese <laughs> right, take exactly. Uh, and this this is from an old study, but it said adjusted for 2014 prices, The Exorcist has grossed 1.794 billion. After this podcast, though, that'll probably hit two oh, yeah, billion if, sure. if they haven't yeah, already. If they haven't already watched. Uh, so, so moving on from it. from the film, um, some people believe that the devil never left St. Louis, and the Alexian Bros they had to keep it a secret. That hospital room where it happened was locked and people say weird stuff happened yeah. around there yeah yeah i've heard that i've heard that uh i've read it quite a bit but i've also had it a lot of people tell me about it mm -hmm. um and this goes back to uh my days of horror that i spent um for two seasons at fright fest in St. Uh -huh, Louis. Right, right. I, i've told that story before uh telling the same stories over and over yeah. and over again all day long every weekend in October and uh, but I but I did pick up a lot of great stories that way from people and I met quite a few people because I I would get up and tell a short version of the Exorcist story 
And uh, I met a lot of people who had, um, you know, had worked at or had known people there or had, you know, at different times spent time at the hospital after it was no longer just monks. Yeah. Um, who had, you know, encounters in the area where all of that took place around that hallway um, along the, you know, where the door was, you know, would, would talk about hearing things or, or they said it would all, was always cold in that hallway. And during the time it was happening and years afterward, I mean, this was, I mean, this would, was decades later, a lot of times in, like in the seventies and into the eighties. Um, but you know, by the eighties, I was hearing the stories, but it was gone. Mm-hmm. You know, at least that part of the building was gone, but yeah. people would talk about working there in the sixties and seventies and having these things these encounters around this room. Okay, so you mentioned in the monologue that a monk once heard Woody Woodpecker laughing on the radio, and he pulled it out because it reminded him of Robbie. And yeah, we, we, we played a little bit of that. Flip, flipped out. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, he didn't just unplug the radio. Oh, he, like, knocked for kids it. over yeah. to try to get over to the radio to, like, jerk it out of the wall because he didn't want that song to play. Right. And I looked, I looked that up. I mean, I had already heard it, but I wanted to know, okay, like, let me see what's really going on here. I found a 13-second video. It had <laughs> 1.7 million views yeah. just to that laugh. I know. Which is, it's disturbing, too. Yeah. But well, it actually was a song. I mean, it was a song that was yeah. played on the radio, and it's the, uh, the, it's the song, it's the clip that I played. That was right. actually like a four-minute song. For the Woody Woodpecker show. Why is it I mean, so long? I don't, well, I, they just sing about Woody Woodpecker, and it was <laughs> apparently po- very popular, you know. But I mean, it was the '40s. But you know, the weird thing about that is that that song actually came out in 1946. So Woody oh. Woodpecker was already on, you know, movie screens. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was. They were already seeing him at, you know, at the movies when you would go, and there would be shorts, just like. Looney Tunes and stuff. I mean, people, most people didn't have TVs back then. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't on television. It was, it was at the movies, but the song became really popular and it played on the radio. But like I said, it came out in 46. So it had been around for a while, which see, as soon as I found out when the song came out, mm-hmm. I, I, then I immediately became suspicious yeah. of Robbie, you know, imitating Woody Woodpecker. Right. Right. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that the monk said, Oh, I've heard that exact laugh. I think it, it reminded him yeah, of that laugh. Right. So I'm, but I, you know, I, I couldn't help but be, you know, skeptical. skeptical. Yeah. yeah. And then talking about tearing down the the Alexian brothers, that the part of yeah, the, I've heard the hospital. That story about 150 times. Yeah. So apparently yeah. they couldn't control the wrecking ball yeah, that's what they at said. one point. And um, that was after the, you know, and then the, of course the, strange shape that escaped from the building yeah so are we talking like a possum here or are we thinking this is a nobody knows interesting no one knows you know (laughs) and do we know what actually happened to the furniture that was in that hospital room no that there are a couple of different stories and that's and again those are kind of my favorites and the uh, the one story was that you know they took it down and they it was sold off to some nursing home and that was a story in itself because nobody wanted to go up onto the fourth floor, blah, blah. You've heard all the stories. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what happened to the furniture because it was torn down. That was the first story. But then the other story was told to me by a guy who claimed he was one of the crew who took the furniture to that rectory or, or picked it up yeah. from the rectory. And the, so the story was is that it was taken to this rectory and it was locked into a room in the basement. And then this guy was part of the crew. They were getting ready to tear down this rectory. And he said that he was part of the crew that came to move the furniture. 
and they took it out of the room and the priest would not go into the room. Right. And they took it out of the room and they loaded it onto a truck. They put it in, they had a crate on the truck, put the furniture in it, closed up the crate, and then they took it to this storage facility, which as it turned out, at least at the time, and I'm assuming it probably hasn't changed. Not that this is a huge deal, mm-hmm. so let me downplay that okay. just a little. Okay. But at the time that I checked into this story, the Catholic Church actually owned that storage facility. Uh-huh. But they've got lots of property. I mean, there's right. lots of investments. So they have plenty of real estate investments. So that doesn't necessarily mean anything, but I did find it to be kind of interesting it, anyway. It is And it certainly adds to the story. It, but as I mentioned, though, I, I said it's probably sitting next to the Ark of the yes. Covenant somewhere. So I was actually thinking it. about Indiana Jones before <laughs> yeah, I got I to I know, that when part. you get to the part about the storage facility, I know. And then the house at the 8400 block of Roanoke Drive in Belnor was bought and the owner vanished, leading to a poorly researched and inaccurate article uh, <laughs> you know, Mike, in the local paper. about that article. And, the, and, and it I appears don't mention, every Halloween. I don't mention that. Where it came from, but let's just say it's a it's a regional newspaper. Yeah, you'll and, and you'll see it. Yeah, oh yeah, you'll see it because they they bring it back every holiday and they never update it. And it was written in two thousand and five. That's so dumb. And it's it's there's so much bad information in it. They should just yeah. ask you to just ton of bad information. Something new. Was, well, that would it require work. Somebody had to rewrite. Right, it, so right. Do that. And then uh, moving on. So our friends from the Dave Glover show. Yeah. Uh, were there, and I, I knew that you knew them from beforehand. Yes. Yeah. Um, but basically, the idea was they had some listeners, and a bunch of people were supposed. Well, I had done talked about the show on Dave's show quite a bit. Yeah, uh, over the years, I had talked about the the Exorcist right story. Right, and I remember like and being in that room talking about. They're like, yeah, you know, the Exorcist house, all that thing, but yeah. I didn't know exactly what happened. But yeah. apparently, people were supposed to spend one hour alone in Robbie's right. room or where right. the exorcism occurred, but none of them made it. Through. No, no. In fact, one girl left when she found out where they were because they were brought there like blindfolded. Oh, wow. And put in the living room and then a clip from The Exorcist was shown. And then uh, I explained to him that this was the real place where it happened. Mm-hmm. And one girl quit. That She left. Right that then, was huh? it. And the other two, and, you know, and I can vouch for the situation because everyone else... Everyone else that was there, we were all sitting in the detached garage in back. Mm-hmm. We were all out there. There was no one in the house but the people that were part of the show. And none of them stayed in that room for long. Uh, the, the, the first guy stayed for, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes or so. But that next girl, eight minutes, she was yeah. out. And it was, and I mean, the screams that you could hear from outside of her screaming in that room, I kept thinking, this is probably what the neighbors heard. Yeah. You know, back in 1949, people screaming next door because the houses are not that far apart from each other. Right, right. You certainly could have heard things going on because we could sure hear her screaming. Yeah. Did you feel freaked out in that house? Do you think you could have hung out there? I I probably could have after my initial entry to the house. And I don't remember if I told you the story or not, but I've told it a couple of times, but when I first got there, um, I had been to the house before, but I'd never been inside. That was the first time I'd been inside. And I've been inside since then, and it didn't have the same effect on me. So that makes me think that it was my imagination. Mm-hmm. But when I went, I really didn't, you know, none of this stuff had happened. You know, so I, I really didn't think anything other than, oh, I'd like to see this place. This is a cool, this is a historical spot. But I didn't think, oh, well, it's a haunted house or anything like that. Yeah. And um, so I had had never been in. So Dave took me on a 
kind of a tour of the house. We went through the whole house, and then we went upstairs to what the the cousin's bedroom that where Robbie had been staying, where the exorcism took place, or started. And um, we went up, and we were you know looking at the hallway, and I was you know getting all the layout in my head of how everything was. And then um, Dave went into the room, and he, we were just talking. And uh, I, I kind of stopped in the doorway and was listening to him. And he said, um, oh, well, we come on in here and let me show you. That's not a very big room. And I got to the, no lie, and, and, and this isn't me making anything up. I walked to the doorway, to, right to the frame, to the door frame, to the entry to the room, and I couldn't go any further. Hmm. I mean, I, I couldn't walk forward. Yeah. Now, I didn't. I mean, I'm not going to say, oh, it was, you know, I don't, I don't know what it was. I don't know why, because I really wasn't expecting anything out of the ordinary. Um, it, to me, it was just a house where something had happened that I knew a lot about and wanted to see it, but I couldn't walk in that room. And Dave actually said to me, what's going on? You come in here. And I mean, I, I couldn't step forward. Finally, finally, he grabbed a hold of my sleeve mm-hmm. and pulled me into the room. I'm not kidding. Jeez. And when I looked down, like all the hair on my arm was just standing on end. I mean, I felt like I'd walked into like a, one of those electric yeah. generator things. And it was the weirdest, oddest sensation. And, um, but it only happened that one time. I said, I've been there since then and been in the room and spent more time in the room. And it didn't, it, it never had the same effect on me again. Yeah. That first time it did. So I always like to think that it was, you know, something something happened, but I don't think it was. Mm-hmm. You know, but but on the other hand, I didn't go there thinking anything weird. Yeah. I mean, I really thought well, this is a dead space. It wasn't until after these things happened with these the people from the radio show that I started to think that, you know, maybe there is something lingering in that house. Not necessarily a demon, but energy from what happened there mm-hmm. you know still kind of behind you've been to some of the scariest yeah. places in the country true. you know and i've never seen you, know, you not want to they, they go leave an impression you know the, that stuff can leave an impression behind and i i've wondered since then if that's not what the case is there on roanoke drive it's just that the things that happen there that's what's left an impression behind yeah so that's all I have, yeah. aside from... Well, I know. You want to hear my personal thoughts on this, I know. So, yes. And, you know, and I and some of this stuff I, I've, t- I've talked about, you know, I've, I've dispelled the thing that I think it was a hoax. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think it was a hoax. Um, they gave him several tri- several several offers to back out of the whole thing. If, yeah. You know, if you're making this up, now's the time to come clean. And, you know, he never did. Um, if it was a practical joke, you know, it was one that definitely went too far. And I don't believe that. Um, I don't. I don't think that you know that he did it. I don't think it was just a poltergeist. I don't think he was mentally ill. Um, you know, as far as the church is concerned, they just say it's unsolved. I mean, they don't. Their official position. Um, as far as what I personally think, my my opinion on it has changed a lot over the years. When I first started investigating this story and researching this story, I. I honestly came into it thinking this couldn't possibly be real because I don't, I don't believe in demons. I mean, and to this day, I still don't believe in demons, you know, like, you know, we're told there are on television and things like that. I don't, I think other things have been mistaken for demons Mm -hmm. and that's probably what I will get to in this. Um, But 
my mind changed several times over the years. Um, you know, my mind changed a little bit about the house, you know, after the, the incidents happened. And I thought, well, you know, something happened here. And I've always believed that. I've always believed that something really strange happened in this story and um, that we can't explain. We'll probably never be able to explain. And I've always thought that. But I never really thought that it was supernatural. And I guess, really, what my, my I, I'm having a hard time here really kind of putting together exactly my thoughts on this because they're a little jumbled like the whole story is, I guess. Uh, but I, I think this started out as a poltergeist situation. I think that the, the early stuff was created by Robbie unintentionally. I don't think it was a hoax. I think he was a fairly disturbed young man. Um, he had a lot of, he had problems with school. He had problems with people. Um, I think he had a lot of antisocial problems, you know, and I think that the initial stuff was kind of the grief over the death of his aunt and that he was really close to. And I think that that's what started the bed shaking and the things moving around and the scratching on the walls and that kind of thing. You know, I know that, you know, a, a priest would, would disagree with me and tell me that's the beginning of a possession, but I, I don't think that's the case. I think that this was a, a psychosomatic thing that some of the stuff he was causing with his mind, he was causing it to happen. Um, I think that when he got to St. Louis and things got worse, I think at that point, something else started to happen. Now, I would have easily have continued to believe that it was just a poltergeist case if I had not. In fact, that's pretty much what I did believe. I mean, I would always downplay it and say, oh, well, you know, something happened, but I don't know what. And that's what I would say, because I honestly believe that there was there was no possession involved here until I had hours to sit down with, with brother Greg. And here was a guy who had spent his whole life. And I, and I think I mentioned this in the monologue, it spent his whole life in service to other people. Why, why would this guy lie? Why? There was no possible reason. Now his beliefs and my beliefs are not exactly the same. I mean, he was utterly convinced that this was something demonic and it was straight from the devil. I mean, he was very clear about that and very adamant with me that, that, that this was the devil at work. This was the devil's voice he heard. This was everything. But on the other hand, he saw things that all of these, he saw things I never saw, obviously. He saw things that no one else who had ever written about this case or talked about this case had ever seen. He was there. He was holding this kid down when he was levitating off the bed. And this guy, why in the world would he lie about the story? I mean, he was weeks away from death when I talked to him and he knew it. He knew he was dying cancer and he knew he was dying. And, um, you know, he was very adamant about what he believed in this. And honestly, I left, I left his apartment, um, shaken up because it had changed my entire opinion about everything that I think happened now. So what do I think happened? Well, I think that the situation with Robbie and this poltergeist activity and, you know, he had kind of fallen under the power of whatever was happening, you know, mentally. I think it, it sort of invited something else 
into this case. Um, not a not a demon like we would think is a demon, but what I think demons actually are. Um, I mean, obviously, I believe in ghosts, or I wouldn't do what I do for a living. Um, but I also think that there are spirits like the Bell Witch, and we've talked a little about that, that are not human and never were. They are just something else, and they've been here a hell of a lot longer than we have. Um, and I don't know that we understand all that completely. I think our ancestors understood it probably better than we do. But I think that there are things here that are not and never were human, and I think that it took advantage of the situation is what I think. And to a Catholic priest, that's a demon. To somebody else, you know, somebody like me or somebody who shares some of the same ideas that I do, this is just some sort of entity. And I think that whatever it was grabbed a hold of Robbie, took advantage of the weakness um, of what was going on, where he'd gotten deeper and deeper and deeper into this whole thing that was happening with his mind. And I think there was an outside influence in this. I didn't, I didn't used to. I really always thought that this entire thing was all in Robbie's head, so to speak. Um, but I, I have come to believe there was some sort of outside influence. And if, if you're a religious person and you want to believe that was a demon, feel free. But I think that you're putting a label on something, you know, th that's a label. That's a label. And I'm, I'm not going to put a label on it because I just don't know. This is just a personal opinion. And you know what? Two years from now, I may change my mind. I may come across something else as I keep working on this, because I'm not done. I'm still not done. Um, people who come to our Dead of Winter thing, uh, I'm doing a dinner with the devil afterward, and I'm going to talk about this case, and I'm going to talk about some things there that I didn't even talk about in the podcast, just for the ears of the people who are there, because they're things I don't want recorded, so or in print, because they're, they're details that I don't think people need to know right now. I mean, I know that sounds shitty, but you know what I mean by it. Yeah. So, you know, who knows? I may change my mind, but right now, that's the feeling that I have, that there was something in this and something to it. And I think that it was, I don't think it was the priests who got rid of it. I don't think it was the exorcism. I think it was the, the idea of the ritual of the exorcism that Robbie was able to push this thing out and get rid of it. You know, um, that's... I don't know. That's my opinion. That's my thought on it anyway. So I know that was, I, and I'm still hem hawing around because I just don't know. <laughs> I mean, I just don't know. This is just an opinion and this is what I, this is what I feel right now. Yeah. So. No, it's very interesting. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned the Bell Witch. Are there other cases that you've worked on or things that are, you know, famous in pop culture or whatever that you think are follow a similar path? I think there are probably plenty of them out there. That's just one that I've dealt with for so long too that's another case that i've been you know researching since the early 90s and you know dug into the bell witch and i that's the one thing that really makes sense in that particular case um you know i i think the key to that entire story is you know right before the haunting began some of the kids in the family were digging up a burial ground and dug something up that the Native Americans who had put a burial ground there to keep something in. Um, it just so happens that burial ground is right above the cave that still exists on the property, exact same, I mean, directly below it. And now, now the cave is haunted? Well, sure it is, because it's all connected, you know. And, but I've never believed that that was a ghost. I mean, I, or I'm certainly wasn't a witch. It's just what they called them back then. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe it was a ghost. I really think that it was something else, you know, something old. 
And I think that the same situation in this is something got involved in this. That, and maybe it was just a ghost. I mean, but I, I think it's unlikely. Interesting. So you believe that there are these evil entities out there, and then we've just called them different names from different cultures. Yeah, I, for I don't a even know that you time. would say they're in, they're they're all evil. I think maybe some are and some aren't. Mm. I don't know. I think there's. I just think there's. I think there are things out there we don't we don't understand that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. And um, I think they're out there, and our cultures have been talking about them for centuries. I mean, sent, literally thousands of years. We've had these kinds of things as part of our you know. Part of our world, yeah. And now, as as time has gone on, we understand it less and less than our ancestors did. I think, mm-hmm. and now we call them different things. And I think they've been calling them demons for the last, you know, since the 1500s or whatever. Uh, but I think it's the same thing, you know. So, All right. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know. That, that's the thing. I don't know. So that's just an opinion. That's very so, fair. Yeah. So. I mean, man, aside from a couple housekeeping things, that does it for season two. That is two. the end of In season the... two. We are finished with St. Louis. We're finished with the uh, the exorcism, and we are uh, completely done. And Do you uh, feel you we're... can breathe a little easier now, or does it well, not I, change I feel, anything? Well, I feel we have some, somewhat escaped from St. Louis. Mm-hmm. We have been here for a very long time now. Yeah, people and, get trapped here. It's a weird yeah, thing. Yeah, and I, I feel that we have sort of escaped from, from St. Louis. Yes. Well, so we will be back, um, like we said, we'll be back for Dead of Winter and a couple different episodes randomly, but officially season three will start on February 26th. Yes. And we're going to dive into that. And um, In fact, it, we're going to give you a promo to that at the very end of this episode. Yes. So a couple things before that real quick. Yes. Uh, I wanted to say thank you. We reached we recently hit over 250,000 total downloads. Um, and that's awesome. That just blows my mind. I'd never thought that, that would happen. Me either. I didn't think anybody would care <laughs> except for us. would ever care about anything we had to say. <laughs> nope, nope. And uh, it's great. It's weird that that many people have heard our voices, but um yeah, it, it, but it's great. So thank you so much for at least the first three minutes of our <laughs> voices before they shut it off. Hey, whatever um. counts as a download, <laughs> I'm happy. Um, I did a guest spot on a different podcast out of St. Yeah. Louis called Explain to Me STL. Yes. Uh, you can find them at explaintomestl.com. It was really fun. We talked about The Exorcist, um, and it's just a it's a very different podcast from ours. Um, yeah. but they tackle a lot of issues that I wouldn't feel comfortable tackling right. um, about you know race and culture and sure. things. Um, and I would recommend people check that out. We did have a listener that emailed us and asked if you had any familiarity with the uh, quote-unquote ghost nun that is supposed to haunt St. Clair Hospital in Alton? Well, I've yeah. heard rumors. Well, there are there are stories around about the nun, and um, that's always been one of those stories that we're never supposed to talk about. Ah. That's one of those stories. Okay. That they, you know, but um, we, we, I have talked about it some over the years, and there have been a lot of stories about it. A nun that had, uh, I mean, in fact, her, her picture is hanging on the wall in the hospital mm-hmm. that she was, had been there for many, many years. And a lot of people encountered her. And there are different stories. Some of the stories involve, or they are all kind of the same, but a little different. But they always involve a nun who comes around to provide comfort for patients. Oh. And then who, you know, they ask, oh, I'd like to speak to her. And, well, you know, she died in She's years been dead ago. for yeah. 50 Exactly. Years. It's a lot of that kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, I, I have heard the story. And, um, you know, the first time I heard that story was from someone who had had a baby at St. Clair's. And it swore to me that there had been this nun who'd been in and, 
you know, and had been doing all kinds of things to make her comfortable and, and holding her hand and, you know, as she was going into labor and all this kind of stuff. And then when she was getting ready to leave with her baby, she asked to speak to her. Right. And uh, they said, well, you know, there's there's no none. And they're <laughs> like, no, no, she was she came to my room, came to my room every day. And, you know, and this this is a firsthand account. Somebody told me, mm -hmm. said, well, yeah, I, I think we know who you're talking about. And she said, oh, that's her right there in the picture. Oh, and man. No, no, she, she's dead. I mean, she's been dead for many years. Right. And so I don't know. I mean, that's – I've heard the story quite a bit. I, I don't – I mean, I can't vouch for it firsthand. But mm -hmm. that was a that was somebody who swore to me it happened to them. So there's the story. All right. Um, and one of my coworkers and her husband, so shout out to Erica and David, uh, they are fans of the podcast. I really appreciate them listening. And we were at our holiday party the other day. <laughs> and someone, he, David started talking to me about the podcast and said, you know, we really like the Exorcist series and all that. And um, he started asking about you. He said, yeah, that guy you work with, Troy, seems to know, you know, a lot about this. You know, what's he like? And for the first time, I had my wits about me. And I said, what do you think he looks like? <laughs> And because people always say all the time, oh, I didn't expect him to look like that, but I never asked them beforehand. So he said, well, I think, you know, he, he was down to play ball, you know, and didn't yeah. humor me. He said, I think he has glasses and maybe like a tweed jacket and yeah. kind of like an intellectual pro professorial <laughs> type, um, you know, in so few words, I'm paraphrasing. But I showed him the standard picture of you <laughs> and he was like, nope. That's not, <laughs> not that, what I thought. Not what I thought. Got I think, the glasses part ex right. Exactly. I think <laughs> definitely it's, not a tweed jacket. Definitely it, not an intellectual. So. Well, yeah, you're pretty smart. I think it's the beard <laughs> and the sleeves maybe that throw people off. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. Um, so, but I think that's going to be my new thing, uh, just to try to ask people that. Um, I also wanted to know while we have a couple months, you know, where we're we're still going to be doing some podcast stuff, but um, we're trying to change things up for season three and always, you know, make the podcast better. Yeah. And Troy does the Patreon episodes every, every other week that we don't have a, a you know, normal episode come out. So if there are any ideas for that, I would love to, to just hear other sure. things people would like things sure. that people, you know, feel are worth their time and money for. Like, let me know if there are other things that you want to, you know, get from us, um, whether that's bonus episodes or, or something else, just, you know, let us know if you have any feedback, you can email us at American podcast at gmail.com and uh yeah just let us know what we could be doing better sure. what you would be interested in so all right well i guess we should probably wrap this up and then as i said we'll have a promo for season three uh at the very end of this episode so now we've like made you listen <laughs> you have to all stay the tuned. way through but anyway guys thank you very much for listening thanks to everybody in st louis who had a lot of Really, we had a great feedback and a lot of people who reached out to us uh, as we were doing this episode. And we're not done with St. Louis. I mean, we've got plenty of other things going on. I mean, in addition to the, the books we've done about St. Louis, we'll have other stuff going, too. So it's just like Alton. We're not leaving these places behind just because we finished the season. So thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope that you have passed this on. Share it with your friends. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes. We've had a lot of, 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 uh, of great reviews lately. Uh, that have popped up on there, and we appreciate you guys um, continuing to do that for us. So turn it over to you, to the thing that no one listens to, but now they'll <laughs> have to listen to it because, A, we rewrote it, so now you have to listen because you got to hear what you have not been listening to, and you have to keep listening because if you want to find out about Season 3, <laughs> that's at the very end. Yeah, joke's on you. All right. This episode of the American Hongs Podcast was written by Troy Taylor, and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. In each episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. 
American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and take a brand new look at history and hauntings. That's yeah, a little longer now. I apologize. It is. It it'll be worth way. it. It is. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast apps by searching for American Hauntings, or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to Troy's books and information about upcoming tours, events, and haunted happenings. Remember, if you love the show and you're one of those people who wish it had a new show every week, well, you can have that. American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference, all of which you can find at our website at AmericanHauntings.net. But if you want even more, plus a chance to support the podcast and help American Hauntings grow, then you should check out our Patreon page. As a VIP American Haunting subscriber, you can get bonus episodes of the podcast, t-shirts, access to exclusive meetups, events that aren't available to the public, and more. Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. You can also find your host on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you have comments, suggestions, reviews, or jokes, be sure to pass them along or email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, goodbye, so long, see you later. In June 1912, the deadliest unsolved murder in Iowa history took place in the small town of Villisca and created a haunting that continues to this day. The town had received an unwelcome visitor on that dark night and was touched by a horror unlike anything it had ever seen before or since. Over the years, the brutal murders have earned a place in the annals of both American crime and the supernatural. The murders at the Moore House in Villisca became famous, but they were only part of a series of murders that were committed across the prairie in that era. In the early 2000s, I began my first research into what have become known as the Villisca Axe Murders of 1912. While searching through newspaper files about other murders of the same time period, I ran across a disturbing pattern of similar, in some cases, identical homicides that occurred across the Midwest both before and after that dark night in Iowa in June of 1912. For the first time, I discovered that the monster who visited Villisca had already blazed a terrible trail across the region, using the railroads to carry out his terrible deeds. Season three of the American Hauntings podcast will be based on my book about that transient butcher that wreaked havoc across the Midwest, murdered in their beds. But we'll go beyond even what I've documented in those pages. Throughout the season, we'll be telling the story of the history and hauntings of the Villisca Axe Murders, but we'll also be telling another story as well. A story of murder, madness, brutality, bloodshed, and of course, ghosts. A story of a killer who slaughtered his way across the country only to vanish into history, his face and name forever unknown. And a story of families forever shattered, towns forever changed by murder and by hauntings that have never faded away. This will be a season like nothing we have ever attempted before, and by the time it's done, we know that you, like the people who lived in the small railroad towns of the American Prairie in the early 1900s, will never look out into the nighttime darkness in the same way again. My name is Troy Taylor, this is the American Hauntings Podcast, and we hope you're ready to lock your doors and tune in to Season 3, starting in February 2019. All so right. fucking good, right. man. I'm cool. so glad I didn't read that before because I, oh, I loved it. Oh, good. Okay, I good, good, it. good.